Okay, we have some big news. The Imagine a Place Network is adding another podcast. It's called Impact Icons, and it's from Ecomedes and Mortar. The host is Jen Levison. I love Jen. Jen talks to thought leaders and influencers in our industry who help move the needle in really, really important areas such as energy and water, carbon health, circularity, and social equity. Really important talking points today, and I love that Jen wants to tackle these. Now, honestly, I'm not tooting my own horn here. Everybody who knows me knows that I'm a promoter, so guilty as charged. But I'm really honored to have been selected by Ecomedes and Mortar this year as one of the impact icons. They even labeled me as a global warming silent assassin on their website, which, which is pretty flattering. I, I, now I have this, uh, this mental vision of myself crouching around in a ninja costume, um, attacking uh, offenders of the planet. So um, very, very, um, I'm very, very honored and flattered that they would mention me uh, with this program and um, excited about it as well. Um, anyway, uh, we uh, talk about my new role as Chief Sustainability Officer at ASID and my role with this podcast, Break Some Dishes. It's a really fun conversation. I love talking to Jen. Um, I love talking. I love talking to anybody. Um, in my episode, um, it'll be number two. So please don't miss it. Tune in. Uh, head over to Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts and download Impact Icons. Now, back to our episode. Hi, everyone. I'm John Strausner. And I'm Verda Alexander. And this is Break Some Dishes, an Imagine a Place production. We're looking to places where radical change and transformation are happening. We're talking to people who cross boundaries of their disciplines to use design as a tool to solve the world's most pressing problems. Let's break some dishes. We have a special guest today, a little bit. A little bit different than our typical guest, as you'll see, her name is Natalie Nixon, and she has a company called Figure Eight Thinking. She is a thought leader. This is how she describes herself, a thought leader who optimizes her loopy background in anthropology, fashion, design, thinking, academia, academia and dance. Uh, and so jazz. I Don't forget jazz. And jazz. <laughs> so um, just... And, and the reason she's here is that I met her in now a few months ago, I think it was April of last year at a Cooper Hewitt National Design, Cooper Hewitt Museum National Design Award event on the West Coast. You're on the board of the Cooper Hewitt Museum. And we had one of those spontaneous conversations with another board member who is also a National Design Award interaction winner from many past years. I won't say his name because I think he likes to stay under wraps. But he was, we had this incredible conversation about what it means to be a designer, how to how to step up in the world today as a designer. And do we need 
something more like what doctors have, like a designer's oath. And I've since been circulating this idea with John and John's like, we need to talk more about this. And so that's one of one of many things that we'll we'll dabble in. I think uh, we've got a, a, a tremendous resource here. We're going to talk about creativity and harnessing creativity again to to try to make better design decisions, and try to improve the world through the through design and through creativity. Yeah, we, and I, yeah, and we've said from the beginning too, Verda, that the climate problem is a design problem. Right. right, and I th- right, right, and and I think what Natalie is going to be able to talk to us about today for all those people that are used to us talking to engineers and scientists, you know, we're talking to somebody who's going to talk about creativity, and that's what we need more of. All right, Natalie, tell us a little bit more about your loopy background and anthropology and fashion, all these things, dance that have inspired you and influenced you. Yes. Well, well, thank you very much, Verda and John, for having me on your podcast, especially since it sounds like I am um, different from, distinct from a lot of the other uh, profiles of guests you've had. So it's, it's really my pleasure. I loved meeting you, Verda, those few months ago. And John, it's awesome to meet you too. I have been, sometimes people tell me, oh, you shouldn't say you have a loopy background. You, sh- you say you have a diverse background, but loopy is, is, is the way I felt <laughs> at different forks of the road and at various crossroads. And now I totally embrace the very eclectic ex- types of experiences I've had that have enabled me to do the work that I do. So yeah, as, as you said, I have a background in cultural anthropology and fashion. I worked in the fashion industry as um, first I had an entrepreneurial hat design business decades ago in the 90s in New York City called Nat's Hats. <laughs> and then I worked in the global apparel sourcing industry for a division of the limited brands. And that experience brought me to live and work in Sri Lanka and Portugal. And I always say that that people often think that the fashion industry is either really frivolous or really glamorous. And it's neither. <laughs> it's not frivolous. It is a business. It's a very intentional business. And it's not a lot of glam, maybe for a few moments on the, on the runway. And what working in the fashion industry gave me, which I use all the time in my business and my work today, is a, you know, it helped me to develop a financial acumen, a deep appreciation for the role of tech, especially uh, in logistics. But it also built in me a, a deep respect of always recognizing the role of beauty and desire and aesthetics when we're building consumer insight, which most sectors forsake. The the fashion industry is really phenomenally good at realizing that in building consumer insight and attraction to whatever the stuff is that you're selling, the services, the experience of the products that you're selling, um, also being able to, to not only speak to FOMO, but to, to things like beauty and desire and aesthetics is really important. My background in anthropology is something that I use every single day in my work. It also helps me to understand people and to frame better questions. And anthropology gave me what I call the worm's eye view of society. I think that disciplines like sociology and econ and poli-sci they give you the bird's eye view, right? They tell you on a 30,000 foot level what's going on. It's, it's, it's really helpful because you can see patterns from 
that that view. But what we often don't see see in a lot of, for example, quantitative data approaches is the why. Like why was there departure at this point in the aggregation of data at point two versus point 11? Like what happened? And so you have to dive down and develop what I call the worm's eye view. And that's through deep observation, interviews, figuring out self-inquiry, reflection, and contextual inquiry. So I bring all that together. Plus, I was a professor for 16 years. And the first 10 years, I taught the business of fashion. And the last six years, I taught, I developed and launched a strategic design MBA program. It was an executive MBA that integrated design thinking to help people learn strategy, leadership, finance, and branding. And early on in in that phase of my academic career in 2014, I gave when I had launched the MBA program, I gave a, a Philadelphia, a TEDx Philadelphia talk. And it was, re- I was really proclaiming that the future of work is jazz, that more organizations need to have improvisational ways of working, more adaptive systems. And I, that catapulted me into being invited into companies to facilitate, speak, um, advise. Well, that's, that's when you started talking about this chaotic system, right? Because I is. listened to that TED Talk, which was really yeah, yeah. And we can get more into chaotic systems. That's that's that really influenced the way I think about creativity. But I'm mentioning that because that was the the beginning of that shiny object that started to, to distract me away from my academic career. Because I started uh, my company, Figure Eight, thinking on the urging of encouragement of my husband, who said, "Babe, this is like a thing. All these invitations you keep getting, you should formalize." And I was like, "Okay." So I created Figure Eight thinking. And uh, a year later, realized I was having more fun with my side hustle. So I'm saying all that to say that that's why I say that all those very divergent pathways I took really converge now in this work that I do at Figure Eight Thinking, which is to advise leaders, especially leaders who feel a bit stuck, are in legacy sectors, to transform specifically by applying creativity and foresight. And you call that rigor and wonder. I know you have a podcast also that's called Rigor and Wonder, and you have a card deck that you can purchase on your figure eight thinking website where you can explore those those tools, right? Yes. And I, I just, I love the word wonder. And I think of creativity just being about play and joy and laughter and that we especially thinking about all these things and trying to do everything we can to preserve a future. It can be so such a downer and it's, it can be so easy to lose that. Wonder is a bit of a pick me up for sure. Yeah. We, we abandon that too often. We abandon wonder and we also stop there when we think about creativity, we stop at wonder. So it was really important as I was conjuring up, a way to define creativity that hopefully would be more simple and accessible to people so that people would not conflate creativity only with art and artists, but also understanding that the best engineers, accountants, attorneys, teachers, farmers are super creative when they're doing this toggling between wonder and rigor to solve problems. And it's it's interesting, Verda, that you just mentioned play because the, there's an element of play, kind of like the element of rigor, the element of creativity, which is rigor, there's an element of play that we often forget about, which is loss, right? When we were kids, I grew up in Philly. 
We played in the street a lot. If you showed up for a kickball game or a game of tag or hide and go seek, you understood there was a 50-50 chance that you could lose. Like you knew that going in, right? And I think there's something so valuable about that dimension of play, right? Of learning how to grapple with loss, of modeling how you deal with loss, how how it helps you to to just keep showing up. But the wonder and rigor dimensions are super important. I really wanted to hear you talk about that. Um, Wonder and rigor, because you had said that they combine for what you call sentient intelligence. Yeah, sentient intelligence is a phrase I made up because you're hearing a pattern here, hopefully, in me. It's probably the Libra in me. I'm a bit indecisive, but I also really value the yin-yang dimensions of life and that most of life is pretty gray. There's very little that's black and white. And so sentient intelligence is idea of intelligence not only being in the realm of the rational, but in the and what we viscerally pick up sensorially, what we feel through our intuition. And I was playing around with that idea of sentient intelligence, of our intelligence being fed by um, our sense-making abilities uh, long before this current time in 2022, where I've become increasingly interested in embodied leadership. I think that embodied leadership, sentient intelligence is going to become increasingly important in our work because we have so much tech that's going to take over basic tasks, right? And so that that's the, the nature of the fourth industrial revolution. So the companies, the leaders, the teams that say, okay, there's a lot of tech that, and robotics and automation and AI that's taking over basic tasks, the ones that, that allow for more of the human to show up um, are going to be the ones that, that really flourish and they're going to attract the most talented people. And they're going to allow for that sentient intelligence and the embodied work, embodied leadership. I wanted to come back to play because um, I never thought about play as part of play is this idea of learning how to how to lose or fail, right? And I've been going through that right now because I, I go through these phases where I try to kind of come back to some kind of artistic practice. And I'm, I'm back in that mode again. I have, I have, I found, I've carved out some time and I was reading something about that, that just whatever you, the first things you do, just don't even worry about if they're good or not good, if, if they're total failures. And, and I set up a situation for myself where it's a very easy, like these little collages I can, sh- I can show you. I think I can show you. Oh, I'm on a different monitor. Don't mess up our technology, Verda. There. See up there? Yes. Way up there? I'll send you a picture after. But they're these little tiny collages and they're just for fun and for play. And I think right now with all, all these world issues that we're having, there's we're failing left and right. And I think we really do need to learn how to pick ourselves up and and keep trying, right? And it's, mm. it's so important. You're such so right. You're aspect. so right. Yeah, such an important aspect of play. Okay, I want to get back to um, what you said about aesthetics, because that's something that we've been grappling with, with sustainability, because a lot of sustainable products, materials aren't, don't necessarily have the aesthetic yet, or they're, they're, that, this whole, that whole area, though, has grown by leaps and bounds, and that's not so much the case anymore. But we did have uh, so an early on guest in our first season, Russell Greenberg, who talked about the ethics of aesthetics. 
Mm, say more. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, that was one of our favorite quotes. The ethics of aesthetics. Yeah, John, do you want to elaborate? Russell, um, his one of his big messages ties in very closely to what we're talking about now because he was very big on saying to us, don't wait to find your voice. It's not going to be perfect. It's not going to be beautiful. Verda, just what you were saying. Don't sit there and wait until you create the perfect masterpiece. You know, just get out there and do it. And you've got to be fearless. And and also that it's it's almost about building a new aesthetic that it's not going to be beautiful if it does if it harms the planet, for example, mm-hmm. right? Then it, it so so kind of recalibrating what we find beautiful or aesthetically pleasing. Yeah, and I I think aesthetics also is important because um, we feel before we know in so many situations, and there's increasing research that suggests, and I learned this in a great book. Uh, called The Extended Mind. Uh, I keep mentioning this book on podcast interviews, but I love it, love it, love it. That's awesome. Um, It's by a woman named Annie Annie Murphy-Paul. And she cites research that shows that we actually are, that our bodies are more rational than our brains, that cognition actually kind of starts from the body. And then our brain responds accordingly. And we know this through our palms start to get sweaty, our heart starts to palpitate and beat faster, or our pupils dilate. So so we get these signals embodied in us that do that. So similarly, aesthetics help to cue in um, scent, smell, taste, uh, what we're hearing, what we see visually. And that then... um, causes a response. And so that word ethics add into there is very intriguing to me. I'd love to meet this person and, and read more of his work because um, we can manipulate that, right? <laughs> we can manipulate that for good. We can manipulate that for bad. I think of, let's look at architecture for a moment. And I know at some point our conversation will talk about, uh, should there be a, a, a designer's oath? But I think about public housing and I think, do the people who, who design public housing, would they want their families to live there? Would they want to live in a hump, lumps of concrete with barely any access to natural light? That's an aesthetic decision that has incredibly ethical consequences about how people feel about themselves, how people feel about their community, how people feel about the way others feel about them, Right. So that's that's a, that to me is an example that my mind goes to when we when we talk about something like the ethics of aesthetics all the way to uh, the the beauty and cosmetics industry. I'm an African American woman, and you know the beauty industry only recently <laughs> has started to explore. Let's just take this issue of the color nude, right? Yeah, <laughs> ball who's nude? Head, yeah, right? Who's nude? Right. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, there's a whole range of beautiful skin color from espresso, dark espresso brown to really, really, really pale ivory. And, um, you know, from finding a, a, a foundational cosmetic makeup that looks right on me to the right tone of red for lipstick to you know all those sorts of things. Th- that's where my mind goes when we talk about ethics of aesthetics. I think it's super interesting. Yeah, you bring up really great points. I think that... Um, 
aesthetics can basically contribute to maintaining that status quo or those systems in place that that keep people segregated or perpetuate those inequities by just or, or not right with yeah or not exactly that that designers or whoever designed these things have chosen to be part of creating these spaces or designs or products that perpetuate whatever mm. yeah whatever there are norms. ethics in design you know yeah which does come back down to the designer's oath and i think um that that thinking about that designer's oath came from this book by Mo- mike montero called ruined by design oh i should have put it in front of me because it has a long subtitle how designers ruined the world and how, what we can do to fix it something like that but um that's where i first thought of a designer's oath and basically throughout the book he's saying as designers we're gatekeepers we should be thought we should be thinking of ourselves as gatekeepers that and and it, it, it's hard to do when you have a job and you have a family and you need that healthcare plan and etc so it's 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 a bit idealistic but um say you work at um a um Facebook or something like that, and you're designing. He's comes from the UX world, so a lot of a lot of what he, a lot of his examples are interface examples. So we all have a duty to really think about the impact and what that execution of design, how that's going to influence and support the positive parts of our society versus the negative, right? Yes. Uh, and I actually just found the book. It's, it's, it's looks like an incredible book that the subtitle is how designers destroyed the world and what we can do to fix it. That's a bold subtitle. <laughs> and he, he kind of says that designers have designed absolutely everything like our monetary system, our, um, how, how, how we get things from point A to B, our capitalistic system, our colonial system. And I said, I I was at this event and I was doing, I was asking a question and I quoted that. And this, the speaker got really mad. He's like, no, designers <laughs> did not design capitalism. <laughs> so, okay. so I guess it's a, it's little a product bit of, a, of design. It's a product of design. Yeah, it's a bit of a big statement. And I think he's thinking of designers, kind of like what you were saying and how you work with leaders that everybody's creative. When I was, I was doing, I do a, used to do a lot of tech firm, uh, des, workplace design for tech companies. And I saw those engineers as yes. designers. They were designers. Yes. Yes. Well, when I worked in apparel sourcing, I was working in factories, visiting mills regularly. First of all, these these are some of the smartest people I'd ever worked around and with. And engineers, their ability to problem solve, to juxtapose, to do a remix, to do a mashup of of things, that's what creativity is. And then when I would see a textile yarn engineer jamming it out with a visiting designer, over the hand of a yarn, what twist it should be so that you get the desired drape of the clothing. Amazing, right? But the 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 designer's oath idea um, is a really po- important one for the design industry to explore because designers get to shape the ways that we navigate this world. They get to have an impact on the clothing that we wear, which affects how we feel about ourselves, what we're signaling to others, what it says about status. 
It's also very protective and functional, right? They get to make decisions about our wayfinding, decisions and choices about the structures in which we live and, and, and where and how we govern and, and which protect us, but also again, signal status and privilege and, and access. And that has a whole cascading effect as part of a larger system that is linked to material sourcing. So because designers get to shape the way we navigate this world, that's, that's a lot of power. So, so yeah. just like physicians yeah. are asked to consider an oath. I think, I think that would be really important. Well, I like said, how you said that versus we design the systems. <laughs> we design yeah. the ways we navigate the world. I like how you phrase that. I think, I really think, you know, design manifests itself in, in so many different occupations. And, you know, there, there comes a point when we all design our way through something. But Natalie, you said at one point that there's nothing, there's really nothing sexy or adorable about creativity. No, no, I did. I, I thought I was talking about rigor. No, you were saying that creativity is a lot of hard work. It's a lot of sweat. Yes. It's a yes. lot, you know, people think it's glamour. They think it's fun and, um, and sexy, but it's not, but it's not. Yes. I'm wondering, do you think that you can not be creative, but still design well? Hmm. I think you can still design while not being creative, but I don't know if it's, if it's great design, right? It might be prescriptive. It might be um, formulaic. That still could be design, but I don't, I don't know that it's necessarily the best design if, if you haven't also granted the space and the time to be creative. You know, not all artists are their optimal creative selves all the time. Not all designers are their optimal creative selves all the time. Same for engineers and educators and, and political leaders, right? That's why I say we are all have the capacity to be creative. It's just a, a matter of, are we making the space and the time for the wonder and for the rigor? which getting to your question, John, is why it's not sexy and glamorous. It's hard. It's hard to commit to making time to wonder, to be audacious, to be in awe, to figure out how to ask a different sort of question or a really ginormous blue sky question, to pause. That's another important dimension of wonder. I, I, I remind clients all the time that it's hard to wonder when you're going 80 miles an hour. And then the rigor piece which, you know, we've already talked about, often we forsake rigor in a conversation about creativity, but rigor is about discipline and focus and time on task and skill mastery. It's not a fun word. It's not fun. It's, Nobody it's, likes rigor. No one likes rigor. And it's, now here, but here's the thing. I created this, um, it's kind of corollary about wonder and rigor, which is as follows. Wonder is found in the midst of rigor and rigor can't be sustained without wonder. So I don't know about you, but there are moments when I'm in the middle of some rigorous work, full of minutia, detail. And in the midst of that, I can have these wondrous moments, right? Where an aha breakthrough idea comes to me. And similarly, we can't expect people to, uh, to just be rigorous, rigorous, rigorous without wonder that they will, they will burn out. Right. Which we see happening a lot in, in different right. people's work environments. Yeah. I love, and, and you mentioned audacious. I just 
was lucky to be on stage with Walter Hood, who's a landscape artist and architect. I think that that's, that's key and kind of him being more audacious. And he talks, he prescribes to an audacious practice. And he talks about how we really do need to, to um, step out more outside of these constraints that we we've kind of self-constrained ourselves yeah. like oh we're problem solvers we have a client we've got to do this xyz and when, if we've done that we we're good right but um but this is not the time to to sit within these defi- yeah. self-defined boundaries we should all be as- prescribing to an audacious practice and and i i'm reading another book called design in crisis <laughs> It's a collection of essays, and there is this quote. It talks about how, you know, as designers, it's it's again these are self-prescribed boundaries. We we think that, you know, if if we if we're um, looking at human consumption, altering the supply chain, sourcing biodegradable materials, um, healthy materials, all that stuff, that that that's what all we need to do. But what we really need to be doing is envisioning the possibility of designing new conditions for being human. And I absolutely love that. And I think any, any one of us designers can be thinking about that and designing towards that. I, there's a visual that Natalie used in one of your talks where you showed the rows of classroom seats and you said, this is how we learn. And then we get out of school and then you showed the cubicle. And we go to work in these cubicles and then we tell everybody to think outside the box. <laughs> yeah, right. It's, it's, it's very frustrating. Um, we are always equating innovation to think outside the box. And I remind people that the great American dancer and choreographer Twyla Tharp wrote in her wonderful book, The Creative Habit, that before you can think out of the box, you got to start with the box. So it's okay to start with those boundaries, those rules, that structure. Designers start their training by understanding the rules, but you learn the rules so that you know how to extend them, stretch them, peek around them, um, and 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 over and 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 below them. Um, I wanted to go back to something that Verda um, mentioned when she was reflecting on this this idea of of sustainability and design and that wonderful quote you read, Verda, which is that this thinking outside the box, this, you know, figuring out how to design for sustainability, that word envision is so important. And the role of imagination, the role of being able to ask what if to sit with that question of, I wonder, it all starts with those questions, thinking outside the box. I'm just, I'm just linking your, both of your, your questions. It, that, that foundation of envisioning and dreaming and imagination is super important. And think how that gets constrained if the majority of kids, for example, are educated in situations where they have to be you know, rigidly in, in, in their seats um, and can't, learn and the bell curve of learning, which is not just verbal learning, but visual learning and um, contextual learning and kinesthetic learning, experiential learning. So that, that, that possibility for, for really making sure that we build in time in our days and our work for imagination, dreaming is so important. Yeah. And envisioning these, the possibility of designing for new conditions of being human 
it doesn't have to be something dramatic and huge. It could be something very small and simple, right? But I think it does stem from asking questions, like really saying, what is this? What am yeah. I doing? What? How is this affecting the, the world? And yes. I mean, I even think about just what if as an interior designer, if we addressed more directly all the waste that happens in our industry somehow, right? I mean, that's... And, and, and it's not just, it's, it's a system problem. So it's really about breaking down the pieces of the system. Otherwise, we're just yeah. diverting something from landfill, but not really addressing the bigger problem. Natalie, um, do, you th- do you think that we improvise enough at work? I know you, you talk about that. I I don't think that we improvise enough at work. And I think that we have a fear of improvisation in part because we don't even recognize it in ourselves, but it's really a core part of human development is, is our ability to improvise. So improvisation is any adaptive, self-organizing, emergent system. We see it very clearly in jazz music. We see it very clearly in comedic improv, theatrical improv. Um, And and being improvisation means your ability to be more experimental, to saying yes and. It's all about the build. And in so many organizations, it's not about the build. It's always about peering back, being afraid to ask a question, uh, feeling like there's going to be a punitive measure, if you, if you dare to take things in a slightly different direction. And so I don't see a ton of that. And I think it, it ha- a lot of the work that I do comes down to it being very inside out work. And what I mean by that is we actually can't expect our organizations to shift until we as individuals also begin to behave differently, first to think differently and then behave differently. Organizations are organisms because they're made up of humans and therefore they are imperfect, they're inconsistent and um, they're not predictive, right? So when I say that improvisation is actually a big part of who we are and how we develop as humans, as children, we hacked our play all the time. We hack our way through figuring out what works, what doesn't, what's right, what's wrong. Um, and, and one of my talks, I show a slide um, of a photograph of a hacked, improvised basketball hoop that's a, basically a, a, a milk crate with the bottom smushed out. And the kids had the audacity to hang the, the milk crate basketball hoop under a sign that says, no ball playing. Uh, <laughs> and that audacity, that, that, that's in all, that was in all of us as, as kids. We've seen our own children. And so we actually have a, a, a wonderful ability to improvise. So to, to tell ourselves that story that, oh, I can't improvise unless I'm like Jay-Z or, or Megan Thee Stallion or, or, or Miles Davis or, you know, it, 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 it's not true. Um, it's all about um, embracing mistakes. It's all about being able to, I'm borrowing from a lot of the work of Frank Barrett now, who does, who's done some great work about what we can learn from jazz musicians in organizations. They embrace mistakes. They alternate between soloing and supporting. So it's not this rigid hierarchy way of interacting with the group. 
Um, they have what he calls hallway moments. So uh, th- there's a lot of informalities that they embrace. It's often um, in work organizations is by the water cooler, the proverbial water cooler, uh, where the kind of kismic conversations can happen. So improvisation is really essential. And it's and actually, it, it's the more logical way to design the way we work in environments that are super VUCA, that are volatile, uncertain, complex, and ambiguous. Um, it's, 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 we're going to be really frustrated if we try to design our work like a, a, a classical music orchestra. We got to design our work like we are a jazz quintet. I wonder if part of the reason it's hard to embrace improvisation is it was the first time I thought about it, going back to you were talking about the body and the mind and how I never really thought about the fact that the body is is the rational one, not the mind, because we're we work so hard. I mean, the body has to ha- you have your heart has to beat, you have your lungs have to expand and contract, and but we always we try so hard, or we believe that our as human beings we're rational, or that we aspire to rationality, but maybe that's not not. Yeah, intuition. <laughs> intuition is so important, and, and improvisation, and all. Aren't those you listening things. to your body when you're when you're being intuitive? Yes. Yeah. Um, exactly. Our our bodies are super rational. Um, intuition is something I, you know, say is like a muscle or a sonar. Um, I call intuition pattern recognition, and it starts with really sitting with how do you feel? And then when you're trying to make an, an, a decision, a strategic decision where you're integrating your intuition, what I do is to imagine myself in two possible future scenarios. Scenario A, I've done the choice that my intuition is kind of leaning me towards. How am I feeling in that future state? What is it like? I literally stop and have myself dream up that up. And then I think scenario B, I'm ignoring this nudge and I go along in the way that someone else told me to, to, to go. How do I feel in that future state? And that actually powers your cognition and it, it also deploys your, your imagination and is using your full body uh, to make choices. I've started to to write and talk a lot more about gut up work. We have been valued and incentivized for chin up work. And that comes from a metaphor of the brain that is brain as computer, brain as machine. And again, going back to Annie Murphy Paul's writing, The Extended Mind, the metaphor she uses, she throws out the metaphor of brain as a computer, just feed it more data and it'll get better. Or brain as, 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 as a machine or, or muscle, you know, muscle is this idea that it will get stronger and stronger and stronger. The metaphor that Annie Murphy Paul uses is brain as magpie, the bird. That's a bird that can make a nest out of anything it finds. So it's very contextual. Then we started to embrace heart up work. We started talking more about EQ in the workplace and emotional intelligence. And that's fine. But I really believe we've got to go a little deeper and embrace gut up work. So work that really is taking advantage of our vagus nerve. The vagus nerve is the longest cranial nerve. It extends from our brain down through our heart into our gut. So think about that. We actually have hardwired in us, in our anatomy, a nerve that goes from our brain 
through our heart into our gut. So when we say things like my gut is telling me, it literally is. That's crazy. Of the, I never knew that. Gut instinct. Yeah. I, I never. Yeah. yeah oh, wow. That explains <laughs> yeah. it. And our intestine is actually lined with a really complex nerve system that is connected all the way to our brain, which then made, made me start to think about, gosh, then what does it mean when uh, we're only eating like junk food versus when we're eating uh, healthy food? Like, how is that even affecting our ability to intuit more, right? It just, it, yeah. it makes you think. <laughs> it really makes you think. Wow. wow. yeah and i think if we designed more from our gut yeah what we would come up with right right yeah i is trying to be rational this goes back to creativity and i think that the if you're creative you trust your gut if you're not creative or enough people have told you that you're not creative that you don't believe in yourself anymore that you lose that connection and and by the way, you have to tap the brakes and pause to, to have that moment, right? Like Natalie, you, you said, you can't be running 80 miles an hour and expect no. to be instinctive. You must pause. You must be still, which, you know, think about all the signals we get um, from our popular culture. It's not about being still and pause. Actually, we're starting to get a few more indicators that that's okay, but but. For the most part, it's about run, 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 go, go, go. I just wanted to say uh, one thing just about the language we use around creativity. I like to say it's not if you're creative and if you're not a creative person, it's when you're creative and when you're not creative. Because again, even the best artists have their moments or their chapters when they are not intentionally investing in time to be more wondrous and more rigorous, the best engineers, et cetera, right? So it's about when, not if, because we all... Um, are hardwired to be creative and have the capacity to be creative. And it's also how we cultivate that creativity, right? Yes, exactly. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. Would love, I would love to go back a little bit more about this designer's oath or talking about how we intentionally or not design things that perpetuate things that we don't really don't want to perpetuate or, or amplify uh, what we don't want to really be amplifying in our society. Like what, how do you think designers could train themselves or work on being more aware of their impact? In the um, world? I think it starts by asking questions. Yeah. And it starts by asking questions of, um, I think this makes sense to me. Does this make sense to other people? What's another take on this idea? What's a perspective from the people who would be using this, right? There's, there's so much of, of the work of design that theoretically says that it puts people first, but it doesn't really always put people first because we're not getting out of the building metaphorically and ask, just asking a question, and that might come from fear of being criticized, fear of being told you're, you're way off base. But wouldn't you want to know early on, and is that the, the whole point of prototyping, right? Just to learn early on um, whether or not you're off base. So even fail when, early and often. Early, fail early and often. We have a lot of quips, but are we actually going out of our comfort zone 
into new and different environments? Are we, are we, or do we keep drawing from the same well, the same groups of people to ask their opinions, right? It's not that designers aren't asking the questions. It's who, to whom are you asking those questions at, at, a, at a different cadence? Situationally, are you mixing it up? Time of day, are you mixing it up? Um, so, so that to me is what, whether you're talking about designing for sustainability um, or designing for um, clothing or designing for logos and brands, it, it really has to start with the questions that you ask. And if you don't know the question to ask, ask somebody else, what does this make you think of? You know, does this make sense to you? How, how would you start to use this, right? And that that's so important to never, never stop asking questions. I love that. Get out of the building, <laughs> right? <laughs> One of the chapters in, uh, or sections of the Creativity Leap is called Get Out of the Building. <laughs> <laughs> that's, that's awesome. Yeah, and I think there's, there's um, trusting ourselves as designers more and believing in our how much impact we do have. And I think that that's why that author of that book, Grown by Design, talks about gate being a gatekeeper and thinking ourselves as gatekeepers because that's that's a huge responsibility, right? And if you think of yourself that way, you're you're elevating what you're you you think or know your impact to be. Do you think that um you talk a little bit about chaos and randomness? Do we do we try too hard to eliminate that from our lives? Should we figure out a way to work with it? Yes, I believe that we should. I feel, really fell in love with the work of D. Hawk, who made up the word Kord. D. Hawk was the first president of Visa, the credit card company, and he landed on this beautiful mashup of a word Kord because he was taking a walk through the woods. And he observed that in nature, there's both chaos, as you said, John, randomness, um, not anarchy, but randomness. And there's also order, which is not control. Order that he was referring to is about structure and boundaries. And they're, they're both coexist in nature. And so he, his attempt in, in leadership at Visa was to figure out how to bring more chaoticness, chaotic systems into the ways that Visa was designed. And interestingly enough, um, one of the ways we can allow for more chaotic systems, more, you know, embracing the chaos as well as the order is by improvising more. Improvisation is a chaotic system. And I, I learned a lot about this when I was completing my PhD in design management and I worked with the Ritz-Carlton Hotel to understand the ways that they design experiences that delight guests. It turns out that the Ritz-Carlton is an incredibly improvisational organization. Most companies that work in hospitality are super, food and bev, hospitality are super improvisational. You have to be because there's so much that you have to adapt to in the moment. And so one of the things they do that I've shared quite often is every day, at every property around the world, whether you are a maid or you work in the boiler room or you work, work in the front of the house as, as a manager, you have these huddles called lineups. There's a lot of things that you discuss in the lineup. So one of the things they always review is something called Mr. Bibbs, which is an acronym which stands for mistakes, 
revisions, breakdowns, inefficiencies, and variations. And they don't, they don't take an hour to go through this. They take like nine minutes to go through it. But what it does is as each is a person shares something that went wrong at the shift last night, we ran out of forks at the wedding party, you know, like, has anyone ever had that problem? What did you do? And no one immediately can think of an answer. They put it out in their intranet. But it begins to normalize mistakes and inefficiencies. It begins to take away the shame and the blame game when there are mistakes and revisions needed. And it totally means that it's a collective co-creation process to figure out a workaround. Um, so the chaos is not something that you shirk away from. You actually realize it will happen again. There's going to be something. We're going to, we're going to be given a new question, a new situation that we've never dealt with before and how are we going to work through it i love it yeah more chaos verda more chaos (laughs) and randomness see i told you i was valuable (laughs) (laughs) well and and i we're coming up on the hour and i was just thinking about figure eight and wanted to come back to your company and wanted to hear what you've got on the books like what's what are you excited about coming up in the near future? Well, something I'm really excited about is that LinkedIn approached me to produce a course and it launched in August of 2022. It's called Lead with Inquiry, Improvisation, and Intuition. There you go. It's, it's my three eyes. Wow, we covered off all of those. Yep. And it's uh, a course that has already gotten a lot of traction, a lot of awesome feedback. And so I really invite people to start following me on LinkedIn, check out the course. Each lesson is super micro. It's like three minutes long. Um, but, But my goal is always to change lives with ideas. And my approach is always to give you a bit of wonder as well as a bit of rigor. So I, I, it's always important for me to make sure that I give you tactical, practical ways to apply these ideas. And you're going to get lots of that in the LinkedIn course. And then you can just keep up with me and my work by going to figure8thinking.com. Hope you check out the book, The Creativity Leap. Um, Verda, you mentioned my, my podcast. The Wonder Rigor Lab will really get you thinking. Um, check out all of my downloads on figure8thinking.com and check out the course on LinkedIn. And thank you both for having me on your podcast. This was a lot of fun. Thank you for taking the time to spend with us. It was a lot of fun to talk with you about these things. I'm going to follow you on LinkedIn. I'm taking the course. Natalie's helping us trailblaze. Thank you, Natalie. If you've enjoyed today's episode, drop us a rating or a review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you're listening. To hear more trailblazers taking on the world's issues through the lens of design, visit us at breaksomedishes.com. I'm Berta Alexander. And I'm John Strasner. And you've been listening to Break Some Dishes. <laughs>